Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I am joined by sushi chef Alex Hardin. She is a sushi chef at Otoko, which is a sushi restaurant in Austin, Texas. I first learned about Otoko really just through doing some research on restaurants in Austin. Uh, we traveled there back in March of this year. It was just one of the places, unfortunately, we weren't able to eat at. Uh, my wife was pregnant at the time, so can't eat a bunch of raw fish, so we weren't able to go. But had we been in a different situation during our normal kind of travels, we would have absolutely gone there 100%. It would have been at the top of our list on places to kind of build the trip around and reservations and whatnot. Even though I wasn't able to eat there firsthand yet, uh, I will at some point here in probably the near future, I imagine 2023, possibly a trip to Austin on the horizon. I wanted to have on one of the chefs from there, and Alex is a woman chef and also a woman sushi chef, which is both kind of still unheard of. Even with all the advancements in the culinary industry and restaurants and everything, women sushi chefs are still pretty hard to find. Austin and Texas in general has like a pretty collective group of them. When you figure out, you know, how many there are in the U.S. and everything, a lot of them are in Texas. Wanted to have, you know, somebody on uh, who's in kind of that field and love talking sushi with people. So reach out to Alex and she was down to do it. She did just recently start also her own kind of private chef business uh, that she's doing on the side, private dinners and stuff that just started after we recorded. So we didn't really touch on it too much. Uh, she started probably like maybe two weeks ago from now. So like kind of beginning of December is when it fully came to fruition. It was kind of random the way she kind of explained it to me. And, you know, once she gets that fully up and running, we'd definitely be down to have her back on and talk about kind of how that all materialized and what she plans on doing with and everything like that. This episode is strictly about her time working in Austin, becoming a chef, and then working at a toko and sushi. So you can follow her on Instagram at A-L-Y-X, so Alex, and then Y-L-A, all one word. You can also follow the restaurant Otoko, which is at Otoko Austin, O-T-O-K-O, then Austin. And you can follow her private chef business. It's at Hone underscore Ona underscore Sushi. So H-O-N-E underscore O-N-N-A underscore Sushi. You can also follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. We're on all the other social medias, either SpoonMob or SpoonMob1 on those platforms. Check out our website, SpoonMob.com. We got pages built out for everybody different food photos, contact information, links to the episodes that they've been on. Um, all that stuff is up there. Contact portal. You can write in questions, comments, feedback, a question if you ever wanted to ask a chef or sommelier or somebody in the hospitality industry. You can submit that through the contact portal on the website there. That comes directly to us and then we'll fit it in with the best kind of corresponding episode whoever it fits best with upcoming guests. And then we'll let you know when it's going to come out, what episode, and you kind of can be part of the podcast. Also make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. We're on all the platforms. Obviously the main ones are Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon Music and everything, but just hit the follow or subscribe button. I think everybody uses a follow button now. And that way all the new episodes get downloaded straight into your device. So whenever they come out, always, you know, Thursdays, 1 a.m., this month, we've been throwing a bunch out on Tuesdays too as well. Didn't have a double uh, episode week last week, but we're back on track this week. So there'll be another episode on Thursday after this one. So just kind of, uh, you know, holiday seasons and wanted to put out a bunch of content for all of our loyal listeners and everything. So if you're new, you know, welcome. If you've been here for a while, thank you. Without any further delays, here's my conversation with Chef Alex Hardin, a sushi chef over at Otoko and the owner of Hone Ona Sushi, which is a private chef business that she started, both based in Austin, Texas. 
Thanks again for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of one of your days off to come on and chat about your career and and Austin and sushi and all this stuff. You know, I first kind of learned about you from Atoko and it looks like a fantastic restaurant. Unfortunately, when we visited Texas, we weren't able to go. Just my wife was pregnant, so she couldn't eat sushi at that time. So there will be a return trip so we can try it just because I follow a bunch of sushi restaurants and it's among my favorite things. So I want to get into how you wound up there and all that stuff too as well. But I always like to start at the beginning with everyone. I know you're originally from Austin, right? So how did you kind of first get involved in cooking and working in restaurants? about like 10 years ago, I think. So when I was like 20, I was working at um, Whole Foods actually, which is also started in Austin. I was a cashier there. There was a day where they were really short over in the seafood department and they're asking everyone if anyone could go help. And I was like, sure, why not? Like, I'll go do whatever. And I went over there and it was a lot more fun than like being a cashier and just like ringing stuff up. Like I got to like learn about all these fish like so quickly and like get my hands dirty and everyone's like a bunch of big dudes. And I was just like a tiny little, <laughs> like, I'm 4'11". I'm very small. So just like being back there with like a bunch of big dudes, like throwing fish around. I was like, oh yeah, this is really fun. And I got along with the manager a lot. They sent me to go help open a new location uh, in Austin, the domain. I started doing like tasting there, the little like bites of like food with whatever. And I was like, oh, okay, now I like cooking and <laughs> seafood. And I was friends with the brand ambassador for Lucky Robot, which is right up the street from Otoko and went and applied there just thinking that, that it would be like an easy way just to get into the kitchen. And it was, you know, an easy transition from breaking down fish in a seafood department to, you know, handling fish more. And then I just fell in love with sushi. I was like just talking about this the other day with a new coworker, but it's beautiful in so many ways. Just everything like translates to each other from like cutting down vegetables to nigiri, your knife work and the way you cut things and paying attention. Like it's all building habits and muscles and you're constantly like learning new techniques and they're all so fine. But yeah, I just know that this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Like it's never going to stop learning, never going to stop being exciting to me either. Was this a profession you always wanted to get into? Did you have family members, you know, working in restaurants too? Or is it just something that you kind of fell into? No, growing up, I ate a lot of like hamburger helpers, grew up very poor. And also like no one is really like... I have some good cooks in my family, but like no one really was an amazing cook. And so like one of the most like memorable meals that I have from my childhood is like my dad making this broccoli cheese soup, which like as an adult and a chef now, <laughs> I look back on it and like that was just like queso with broccoli in it, dad, that we just ate. And I can't believe you like fed that to me. <laughs> I started like cooking more when I was a teenager to just have like some other things to eat. There was like one time my dad was like, well, why don't you be a chef when you grow up? Cause I always wanted to do something artsy. And I was like, no, that's stupid. <laughs> like, why would I do that? I don't know. I thought I was going to like be a tattoo artist or like teach art in school or something. And I tried tattooing for like a very short period of time and never liked that it was permanently on people. Like I couldn't stop like thinking about 
the art I was putting on people after it was done. And there's no way to get rid of that um, besides for like laser surgery. And so cooking, it just goes away. You make it and people eat it and it's gone. So there's always that chance to like redeem yourself on the next one. The next dish can be better. You know, you taste something and it was too salty. Okay, the next one, I'm going to change that and adjust it. And that just suits, I think, me as a person more. Putting a tattoo on somebody, it's permanent. And then it's everybody, I think, is their own biggest critic. So then it's like, if you look back three years later and you're like, I can't believe like I put that on somebody, you know, they're happy with it. So like, you kind of have to go off that, but it's, you're always improving. And I can see how that would be a very tough thing to like, looking back on previous work and just go like, wait, what, what did I do? Cooking pretty much your most finality would be like, if you made a cookbook where that would be like on paper. When you were working at uh, Whole Foods, were you in the back or were you up front like where they have all the slots of the fish and stuff like that? Or are you doing both? I was up front, you know, most of the time, which I guess I've always like done a little bit of counter service, just interacting with people from that to like sushi. It's always a part of me that I'm like, I see myself as a very like not social person. And like, you know, in my 20s, I was very like punk, you know, hardcore and all that. And to then just, you know, have to like interact with people and be nice has been a challenge. I've gotten in trouble a lot, but that is why I like Otoko because I think people really expect that out of us because of, you know, Yoshi, the head chef there, he's very like punk rock, you know, and says whatever he wants. He literally has like 86 tattooed on his middle fingers. Uh, he's shown to a few guests and that's been pretty funny. This is like the first job I've had where like guests will like ask me to do something and I can say no <laughs> to them, like very flat, like. Someone asked me to like, um, I don't even remember, do something stupid recently. And I was just like, no, I'm not going to do that. And he was like, so like entertained by the fact that I was just said no to him. And he talked about it for like the rest of his meal. He's like, oh, I just love that you said no. And it's like, yeah, well, you should let that happen more often. <laughs> People like to try to make you a puppet or whatever back there, but. Yeah, especially the sushi too, kind of the whole vibe around it, you know, historically is it's a very, everything in hospitality is service oriented, but sushi is very customer focused. It's very guest focused because it's usually one sushi chef and four, maybe six people kind of that they're taking care of at one point. So it's very almost kind of like uh, no such thing as like a wrong special order kind of thing. We were at a place, this guy's like from Japan, who's behind the counter and everything. And then there's this woman who's like asking for like sashimi, basically. He knows English, but he's communicating everything in Japanese with the waitstaff and stuff. And you could tell like, it's, we don't do that here. Like this is omakase, like we're going through everything. I have my balance of how I'm doing everything. Your request, uh, this is not the place for that. He had to kind of like let them down easily. And he still made like some sort of accommodation and then they like didn't even eat it anyways. So it was just, it was mind blowing just how you see people kind of interact with sushi chefs. I don't know if it's like they're not used to being told no, or they just don't understand the environment and kind of the culture behind the food in a way. But yeah, you do get some wild just like requests or you just see people do just some strange things and you're just like, you're not supposed to do that. You ask first, like even like taking pictures of sushi chefs is like, 
especially in Japan, like that's a big no-no, but you'll see people like pull their cameras out and stuff. And it's like, you probably should ask first just to set the tone. Like there's this kind of like mutual respect. And I think it, it gets lost sometimes too, as well. For a place like, you know, where I work now at Otoko, like it's, we explain everything and people just don't listen. Like we like even say like very beginning, like, you know, more than welcome to take pictures and, you know, record live stream. We don't care. Just please don't use flash. People will still ask if they can take pictures <laughs> and people will still use their flash. And like, it, that's the worst thing is like that light going off in your eyes, like while you're trying to like work and stuff like that, especially because we're very like dark, like ambiance kind of space. People just love using flash on accident. The whole people asking for strange requests, it's from what you're about to hear, like the last, you know, sushi restaurant I was at, it was constantly trying to do what the guests want. Um, so I've done lots of like, just very silly. Someone asked for avocado nigiri with no rice one time and it was like, okay, you just want some slices of avocado. You understand you're paying $3 for like three tiny slices of avocado right now. <laughs> okay, no, you can't have ginger after you're done with nigiri because, you know, it's going to mess up whatever you're eating at that point in time. You're not supposed to taste that for these other dishes. So I've definitely seen like both sides of <laughs> that spectrum and can understand why like people expect out of place. Like if you're used to going to the more like very fun and lively like restaurants where you can ask for anything like those exist and have their place and I even enjoy going to them if you're constantly going to those and haven't ever experienced a place where it's like this is Yoshi's like menu you're in his house he's providing you these like dishes from his life really and that's a lot of you know what we're making is like the experiences from his childhood to he worked for Uchi for a while to being in Texas for 22 years. Like all of that is like very present in his menu. And it's, that's what you're supposed to experience really. So you went straight from Whole Foods straight into restaurants. Did you ever consider going to culinary school or was that just something you had no interest in? It's interesting. I think back at like my last job I would have said no. And now being like in this higher end uh, space with very like different types of chefs, like I, there are times where I kind of wish I did. You know, I spent six years at Lucky Robot. So like that is really like the foundation of what I learned. And there's a lot of things that like I feel limited me there where I'm now working with people who have worked at like several Michelin star restaurants and have, you know, worked for all these like famous chefs and they're, you're like constantly like hearing and learning techniques that like just weren't present in this, in that other restaurant. It's interesting too. Cause like at Lucky, I like rarely touch the kitchen. I, I made dishes and like design dishes there for quite a bit of the menu, mostly the sushi, but I, I definitely was a uh, part of the kitchen as well there. And then I worked the line when I needed to, but I wasn't regularly working the hotline there. I was always behind the sushi bar, breaking down fish, working nigiri, doing those things, expoing. And now going to Otoko, where it's like the sushi chef there, I'm training underneath, you know, Yoshi. And the only one in the six years that he has had this place open who has ever done that. I still like go into that kitchen and like don't know what's happening sometimes. <laughs> 
I just learned that the like metal part at the top of the burners is called a piano. I would have never learned that just breaking down fish at a sushi restaurant. But it's like, okay, I'm in a kitchen and I need to know these things. So yeah, there's like a lot of like things that I feel like I missed out on and kind of wish that I did go to culinary school to learn those things. But I'm definitely like way too far into it at this point. I'd rather just uh, take the hit, just learn it in the real life kitchen. People learn different ways. Some people learn better hands-on and doing, which is kind of, for me, how I learn the best, where it's like, yeah, you can explain it to me, but until I actually do it, usually I only have to do it like one time. And it's like, okay. Some people are great at just book learning and can just absorb all the information from books. It's really just kind of person dependent. And that goes through really any sort of kind of learning new skill, it, it seems. So when you joined Lucky Robot, like you said, you knew somebody there and that's kind of how you wound up there. Did you always know you wanted to be a sushi chef? Like, do you remember the moment where you're like, yeah, I really want to just go straight into sushi versus learning, you know, French techniques and Italian and all this different stuff? Yes. And it was like my first like year there, I definitely like stood back a lot. There were a few other people that started around the same time as me. There's boards like you have like your lead board that does like all the very important stuff. So you do the nigiri, you run the line, you, you know, do all the sashimi cuts, you plate any cold dishes and stuff like that. And then, you know, you have person helping and then you have maki rolls. And like the maki, I did that for a long time, for pretty much a whole year and never really like, I wanted to break down fish. I wanted to do that. And that was it. I guess just like eventually, like something just clicked I finally like started doing it. It just like felt right learning how to like touch the rice and cut the fish perfectly and do all these other things. Like it, it was so detailed that and like just made me so happy doing it that I was like, okay, yeah, this is what I'm going to do forever. It was a very quick escalation. Our sous chef ended up leaving and it was like, me and like one or two other people who were interested in that position. And that's when I was like, no, I'm going to get it. <laughs> it's going to be me. Immediately turned into like, I started making recipes. I started doing more like manager things. So like organizing recipes and making binders and like doing all these things at home, like off the clock and like just really like putting my all into it. And and then I'm getting in the sous chef position. I actually got it like right before I got married. It was almost like a wedding present from my head chef at Lucky, <laughs> Lucky Robot. Um, I was like going on vacation to go get married when he told me that immediately turned into some of the most like rewarding and also like hardest parts of my career. It feels like a constant battle. And this is something I've been talking about a lot lately, just like being a woman in this industry in particular, like in sushi, um, there are like always people who think they could be doing the thing that you're doing better than you. And that is like never ending. It's wild. Teaching people things and then like forgetting that <laughs> you had taught them the thing that they're doing and then them trying to like teach you how to do something. You're like, you know, I, I showed you. <laughs> I showed you this. Like, why are you trying to like teach me something? <laughs> it's just part of it. Did you ever consider to go to Japan at all and stage or train there or anything? Or was that not something that was even remotely in the cards for you? 
going there to train, I feel like if I was like a different person, I could definitely do that. Outside of my work life, I actually, so I am married. My partner and I, during the pandemic, adopted my, at that time, 15-year-old uh, sister. And now my other sibling is also coming to live with us. I'm now 30 and have two teenagers. <laughs> Going and training in another country is kind of off the table at this point in time. But I am very lucky to like, there is a Japanese chef <laughs> here. <laughs> like I got the Japanese brought to me. And he is great in knowing like, just so much. I mean, he's been doing this for so long that it's I'm constantly learning like new words and like why things are done a certain way and just like so much. It really is like, like it was brought to me instead of me having to go there. And it's really great. What would you say was the biggest challenge when you first get started at Lucky Robot starting out in sushi and Japanese cuisine? Was it just like the terminology kind of like that language you had to learn? The biggest challenge was just like kind of like the slap in the face of, of Western to Japanese style of breaking fish down. Like in a fish market, when you're breaking down fish, you're just taking the meat off the bone. That's it. Like it's very like straightforward. Just cut it off. You know, there are some techniques to a lot of things, but you're definitely a lot more rough, <laughs> I think, behind, you know, a fish counter. It's just gotten like more intense too throughout my career because it's like from the fish market, you know, I went to Lucky and they're like, whoa, you're being too rough. And so I break down fish there and, you know, learn how to be softer and pay more attention. And then going from Lucky to Otoko, it's again, just like, whoa, you're being too rough. You need to calm down there, like having to change all these things of like, like even from like the way we break down the head or take the head off fish, like, you know, lucky there is a technique where you put the knife pretty much in between the vertebrae there, you cut back there, you can see where it is. And then if you just press down, it'll pop off. And now working at Otoko, I've learned that there are fish that when you do that to it, when you press straight down, you're putting pressure and you can tear those fibers right there, like the layers that there are. And, and so instead of that, we like lift it up. So you're holding the fish up and you use the heel of your knife and you hit the spine with that. And the weight of the fish will help break it off straight down and it just happens more like naturally instead of doing it with pressure but like that's just like one part there's so many other things besides for that that it just like helps have like a way better product where you're really just taking care of it to to give people that perfect like bite and texture that they're looking for Six years is a long time to be at one single restaurant in the U.S., but in terms of sushi restaurants, especially in Japan, that's a short time. What was the reason you would say that you were at Lucky Robot for so long? I just kept growing there. And really, the reason I left was like, I really felt like I got every bit that I could out of that place. I had done everything there from learning how to do maki to fish to, you know, running the line to expoing to, you know, I had worked each part of the hot line to making dishes to managing the floor. There were times I did that. Like, you know, I pretty much did everything but host and bartend there. <laughs> like, and I really felt like I got everything out of everyone I could. I think that was like a really like good 
way to go about it. Like I said earlier, like there's part of me that wish I had those experiences from a lot of different places that I see in a lot of other chefs, especially like in this level, but also like to go there and then now be at Otoko, like I kind of want to do the same thing again, where it's just like, okay, how do I get, like I'm working with these really, really amazing talented people in every part, like from, you know, Yoshi who does sushi, it's been doing it for 22 years to Billy, our GM, who's just, just amazing. He knows so much about alcohol. <laughs> like there's so much in his brain about it. And it's like, okay, well, and guest service as well. And it's like, okay, I want that too. Like I want all of that knowledge and I want to know all the things that you know, and you think about and all of that too, like we're constantly getting more and more talented people in our doors and growing. And it's cool to learn from all these different sides of it. Later on, it's going to really help make me into like whatever I'm going to do. Like, I don't know what like the end goal is quite yet. You know, I'm just now trying to like, just get as much as I can out of everyone. So how did you wind up at Atoko with Yoshi there? Was it you just found out they were opening a restaurant and you applied or somebody you knew recommended you to go there or recommended you? They've been open for six years. So I've known about them for a while because they were right up the street. So when they did open, I was already at Lucky and, you know, we talked about them because it was like, okay, well, there's another sushi restaurant opening like four blocks away. We should pay attention to that. And it was such a different concept that it never really affected us. Then like several years went by and I, you know, did all my stuff at Lucky and I applied at one point in time just for like the heck of it. Um, I saw they were hiring a Sue um, and never heard a response back. And then again, like someone left Lucky to go work there and they uh, worked underneath me. And when I worked there, it was very like um, when I was managing just I try to be very like hands-on with managing and personal. Like I like the idea of chefs being like chefs with a big C, you know, when you think about it, like, you know, you are this person, it is, you're taking care of these people and teaching them and helping them grow and like helping their like dreams come true. You know what I mean? Like that's really, I've seen lots of like, videos and documentaries and stuff about people and those are the things that have always liked really like got me excited about the idea of it but he was leaving and we sat down to talk about like why he was leaving and lucky could have done better and like all these other things and i was kind of in a rocky spot already at lucky and kind of thinking about leaving and he was like well you know they're hiring at Otoko, like they're looking for a sushi chef and a sous chef. And I was like, oh, well, like, can you put in a word for me? <laughs> and he's like, you know, you've been amazing. I'd love to keep working with you. And and so I applied there and it's a long process. I had to do a stage and a tasting and I've never done a tasting before. That was like a whole, like, I was so anxious. I actually got like in a small car accident on the way to my tasting because I was so... <laughs> with all this like food and fish in my car. And I was so like nervous. And I remember just having to be like, oh, I gotta go. I can't like be late to the thing I'm going to. Here's my number. We'll take care of it. I promise. I did that. I had to do like a five course meal for Yoshi, um, which was very uh, nerve wracking. And then I got the job uh, as a sushi chef there and, you know, got to work with that person. He actually I worked with him for a whole nother 
think like 10 months or something that we're working together there. And he just went off to another restaurant where he's possibly going to be a sous chef there, which is very exciting for him. He's only like 23. So I'm excited for him to learn all the challenges (laughs) and grow and text me about it when he needs to. With your tasting, was it mystery basket? Like you work with these ingredients or could you just do whatever you wanted? No, thank God. I couldn't be like chopped or anything like that. Luckily, like I got to pick a few of my favorite fish. I texted that and then, you know, they brought in what they could and pulled me. So I got to a couple cold courses, a couple pieces of nigiri and a chicken dish. The nigiri I had to um, create my own yukumi for. Yukumi is like the, the topping, the garnish pretty much for nigiri. That was really cool and fun. I made a lot of my like favorite things that I've made throughout my time at, at Lucky. So it was nice to like kind of showcase the things that I felt like I had done the best on there. You mentioned when Atoko first opened that you guys were you know paying attention because they were so close in proximity. Austin has a handful of sushi restaurants now that are kind of top tier. How do you guys differentiate yourself from everyone else? And do you guys still pay attention to what everybody else is doing or certain ingredients, certain fish come in season? Everybody's probably got those or wants those, but but how do you guys still keep yourselves different from what everybody else is doing? There is like a lot of very traditional practice at Otoko. Like there are, you know, just like the base of the practices, like those are very traditional and then he on top of that will build you know more like nuanced things but it's always the base of it is traditional and then he'll change parts of that and i think that that's something that that makes otoko very different um is that you can get a very you know traditional japanese experience but with modern takes in the in the parts where it is okay to be modern some of it is like hard to explain because it's just like in your brain, you know what what is right. You know what I mean? Like what should be happening with the rice or what should be happening with the fish. And, you know, there's like the sign of any good cuisine from different places is seeing people from that place going to eat there. Like, you know, a Mexican place is good if you see Mexican people going to, <laughs> to eat there and, you know, liking it or any other cuisine as well. And I always felt like Lucky was a little bit too modern for me. Like it was cool and we did a lot of really cool things. um, And I got to learn a lot of really cool things. Like we had like a whole dry age program there that I got to be a part of where we were dry aging fish in the same way that you would typically do with meat. One other person that is really popular for that, uh, it's the dry age fish guy on Instagram actually have his book as well but that is just not something you've seen very much and so we were doing that there but now seeing that compared to like otoko it's kind of what i was talking about where it's like it's a little bit too much like i think in my head if i ever would have taken some of that dry aging part there are like things that i've learned from yoshi that these are fish you don't touch in that way (laughs) you know what i mean like you can't do it with like everything if i were to combine those two there's definitely a lot of things i think i would have done differently with those fish do you guys primarily do edamai style yeah that is mostly it is edamai yeah we actually do three different menus there so we have one day that yoshi hates uh which is our sushi day 
uh, and he'll openly tell guests, guests that he eats. <laughs> and it is just very nigiri heavy. Like we have, we always do about 20 courses, but that sushi day, I think it's 12 of the 20 are nigiri, which normally we do about six or seven are nigiri. So it's double the amount. And it's just, a, it's a lot like doing it more now and learning from him. Like I've been on the line. I have Tuesdays pretty much are my day. I have my own shorter menu on that day, but there is something about that style that is so taxing (laughs) to make nigiri that way. Like it is so perfect that it just really like kicks your butt, like trying to like make 12 pieces for six people. So 72 pieces in a, like he does it in like I think it's like 30 minutes, which is a lot. Like I'm doing four people at a time and only doing the six pieces. So, you know, I'm currently only doing 24 and it takes me 20 to 22 minutes right now with like all of the like torching and and all the little things that we do. But he does that in like 10 to 15, trying to figure out like how to make that shorter. But So our normal menu, you know, we have the shorter with a lot of other courses in it. So we have like kind of those smaller bites in the beginning and then we go into the nigiri. And then from that, it goes into, we have an assortment of like steamed dishes and soup and fried and then dessert, um, which is, I did that order wrong. It's steamed and then fried and then soup. Yeah, that is very like traditional. So does the menu change then based on the day of the week? Because you mentioned that like certain days, there's certain things. So like, it's almost like every day is like a different menu length. So Wednesday's the long one. And then Tuesday's the short one for me, which is only, I think like 12 courses instead of the 20. The rest of the days are 20 courses, which we're only open five days right now. Thank God. Could not do this job seven days a week. I could not imagine it. But then the menu changes every day, depending on, you know, fish we're getting in because we get different fish in. Like I was talking about earlier, there's like, there are certain fish that can, can be good for like two days, two, three days. But there are some fish that like you have to use right away. Whatever we get in, you then have to like, okay, this we need to use right now. This can wait. This can do this. This can do that. And so then that will kind of change our menu fish always affects the menu day to day. Like you can come in Thursday and Friday and get slightly different nigiri menu. Our steamed fried and and soup, those will all change seasonally pretty much. Like it just depends. We just got in, it's super cold in Austin right now for no reason. Like I'm looking at the temp on my computer. It says it's 43 outside and I'm spending the rest of the day outside. I'm not very excited about it. <laughs> I'm going to definitely be bundled up. I know to some people, Northerners, God bless them. Uh, I know that they would probably laugh at me for saying it's freezing at 43, but it's cold to us. We went from a cold watermelon soup to this like really rich hot soup that has saikyo miso and and sake leaves and dashi in it and it's just very like warm and comforting and and pleasant we just switched to chow on mushi which is that steamed uh egg custard dish and just like all the nice like comforting japanese dishes comes in the winter season i love japanese winter season it's like my favorite 
So do you guys get most of your fish flown in from Japan or are you guys able to utilize some stuff from the Gulf too because of your proximity? No, we actually are getting pretty much everything from Japan. And that that is a huge difference too between Lucky and Otoko. At Lucky, I was actually had a Gulf program. So we were, I think like 80 to 90% of the fish we're getting in were from the Gulf. And that was really interesting learning like, okay, how can this translate? Because we're still trying to give people very like as much of a Japanese experience as we could what do we call this pretty much? Like what fish could this be? Where now it's everything is coming from Japan almost. I mean, we have a fish, one fish from Canary Island. We have a fish from Greece and we have something from Tasmania. And then our oysters are coming from, uh, we have murder point oysters from Louisiana, our favorites right now. Besides for that, everything else is Japanese, which has been really cool learning. Like as I'm getting further and further into like kind of Yoshi's position, I'm learning, you know, where all these fish are coming from and where that is in Japan. And now learning like how that affects fish, like how those waters and temperature, you know, if you're getting something from high up in Japan where it's super cold, is going to be very different from the very bottom where you have, you know, warmer waters. And then from that also learning from Billy, our GM, who, you know, I talked about earlier being very um, knowledgeable in liquors and alcohol, been learning about wine and sake and and that also then translates learning like how climate and weather and waters and the land affects those things like that also happens with fish like all of the the weather and the water and whether there is a clean stream of water that fish are, are feeding off of and all of it is so different and interesting and it's it's very information like overwhelming at times. Like I, I find myself like, oh God, this is a lot. Uh, and trying to like organize it all in my brain. Um, but yeah, it is, it is very cool. Like seeing all of these Japanese fish, we have been writing the Sanma season for as long as we could. Um, still somehow getting it in, but it is, it is definitely reaching its end kind of. Do you have a favorite fish to work with currently? I mean, everything right now is like, Yoshi is opening up another restaurant um, in Aspen, actually. And so next year, he's going to be gone for that a little bit for a few months. And so I'm um, currently trying to just learn as much as I can from him so that when he's gone, it is hopefully like he is not, you know, it is still everyone's getting that same experience. So been doing this for seven years now and I'm trying to do it the same way that someone who's been doing it for 25 years so everything is very like I've been doing the same fish every day (laughs) mostly and like I go in and I break down hamachi and I break down our white sea bass and I break down uh, sometimes sawara and the whole time I'm doing it, I'm thinking about every single thing that I'm doing wrong because I need to fix those things because they can't happen after he's gone. But those have been like the three biggest ones right now. And I would say out of those three, probably the Sawara. Like I like a lot of like the more oily things. So like I actually really enjoy doing Aji right now too. It is very different from the way I learned it at Lucky. And there is something about the way we break it down at Otoko that is so satisfying. <laughs> but 
I don't really ever have like favorite fish to break down, but I do go through periods of favorite techniques to practice breaking down. The way we break down large fish, we will cut both sides like you normally do. When you do the other half of it, we lift the spine up and pretty much you're hitting the spine with your knife each rib cage at a time. It's so hard to explain (laughs) verbally, but you're doing that. And like, when I started doing that, I was just so angry. Like I would just curse the entire time (laughs) I was doing it because I would get so mad that it wasn't coming out just right. But lately I've been doing it and it's like a breeze, like a no struggle. I can just do it. And it's like, oh, I'm not breaking the meat at all. It looks lovely. Like Definitely practices more than fish. (laughs) Now, you mentioned earlier about dry aging and how, and it got lucky they were using kind of almost like a steak dry ager to dry age fish, which is a pretty unique application to it. Like you said, there's not a whole lot of places that do it that way. But you guys also dry age fish there at Atoku, right? Is it the more traditional curing and everything like that and freezing for like three days kind of thing? Kind of. Every single fish is different and they all have um, little bits of details that are different. Like tuna, you actually always want to age in some way. Right off the bat, you don't want to be eating it, especially the the akami. Like it is so, it can just be like really tough and not, you want to give it those few days to like break down a little bit so that, you know, texturally it is, it is pleasant to eat. As far as like curing, we actually don't do a whole lot. Like we, you know, of course our, our saba is is cured and, and pickled, but compared to like other restaurants, we don't really do that a whole lot. A lot of things, it is coming in like so fresh and beautiful that you just don't need to. I remember like my first like week of being at Otoko, you know, is one of the few people who had a lot of fish breakdown experience. So they immediately threw me in the back, like scaling and taking the heads off and stuff like that. But the Isaki, uh, our three line grunt, I remember like looking at the gills of that and being like, I've never seen anything like it, like glowed red. It was just so like bright and perfect. Yeah. It just, you just don't need to do it when you're getting the right stuff in. At Lucky, we did a lot more like, you know, we cured our sanma a little bit or we'd cure a lot more stuff or, you know, we did kombu curing a lot there as well, especially like you want to do that with harame sometimes if it's getting like a little bit further from from preferred freshness, but it's very rarely used here. So there's some fish that basically once it gets chipped, you know, it probably takes a day to arrive from Japan. So that's enough of a natural aging where you don't have to really do too much to it. With Texas and Austin, there's a handful of great sushi restaurants there and and people doing sushi at these upper levels and and high-end levels like you guys are doing. Why or how has, you know, Austin and Texas become kind of this another market now for sushi and omakase, which before it was always New York, LA, San Francisco, Chicago, Seattle, Portland, but that was kind of it. Now, like Texas is kind of in the mix there too. Yeah. I mean, I really feel like that was Uchi. Like Uchi did that really, which Yoshi did work for a lot, especially in the beginning of it. Like 
they open that door for everyone here in Texas. Working with Yoshi, he's definitely like part of this group of people who started the food scene here. It's very intimidating, like <laughs> interacting with them sometimes. Um, Cause we'll go out and it's like, oh yeah, here's the owner head chef of Suerte who won a James Beard award, you know, calling you chef. And it's very like, okay, like, you know, we're about to all go out to um, Nixta after this, uh, which also the chef there got a James Beard award because they came in and ate uh, at our bar and they invited the team over. So we're going to go <laughs> and, and eat there. I feel very like lucky being able to work with this person who they made this possible, I guess, for, for all of us here in Austin. I didn't, I don't have to go move to New York or Chicago or California to have a, a good chef career. Is kind of the sushi scene in Austin and Texas collaborative or is it competitive or everybody just kind of coexists? I think it depends where you are. There's people who come in and they'll compare us to like Sushi Bar, which is like their thing is so like they were part of Scratch Kitchen and then now they're not. And it's like a separate thing or something like that. They sold those restaurants to like their other business partners. So now they fully own their own restaurants but those restaurants still exist and then they kind of open the exact same thing just under a different name. Also still in Austin. It's very like complicated and also just like not really a place I'm very interested in. So I just don't keep track of it. There was a guy there who'd worked there for a little bit and he actually opened up his own little omakase thing called um, Hush. I actually went and ate there. It was a very interesting experience because it was like early and off day for him. And then I ended up getting like a last minute reservation. He was just starting out. So he was just doing like these very tiny, like just one round table, just him doing it with his fiance and the other people that were supposed to come in end up canceling. So it was just me, him and his fiance. <laughs> they were just feeding me and giving me sake. And that was actually like really cool. And I still follow him on Instagram. So it's, it's really cool seeing uh, him grow. And those are definitely the people I'm, I'm so much more interested in, like, in him and what he's doing than, like, the kind of bigger guys right now. Yeah, I mean, it's competitive, but, like, so many people I also feel like are just doing the same thing. Omakase's just got big, and it's just like, okay, here's another omakase restaurant that's, like, a private couple-seat experience, and, you know, there's a big head chef there, and our searing, you know, frog on top of Wagyu or something like that. Like, it's just, like, always the most, like, expensive, biggest thing for, like, every single piece, and... I think doing this for a little while, that's like not what excites me anymore. It's more like this very like tiny traditional like techniques um, and getting like little things perfect. Then like, how do we put like the most high dollar thing on the menu? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's still being grounded in some way towards tradition where, you know, some other places that have opened, you know, they all have their own existence and people love them or, you know, maybe their style is not tradition, which is okay. It still falls into the omakase bucket, but it's more of a, it's not fusion. It's just there's spin on it, but it's not, it's sushi and it's tied that way, but there's no edamai style. It's, it's this whole technique and certain ways you prep everything and, and everything. So maybe it's not tied that way. So it's different, but the same, but yeah, it's kind of hard to describe, you know, exactly 
how they differ because it's not shock value either is not what they're going for. I guess they're giving customers something that they want because the customer might not understand everything that there is to know kind of about sushi, which I mean, you know, there's people that work for 25 years in the industry and don't understand everything. Who's to say what is what? There is a time and place for like throwing, you know, high dollar items on things, but like our Lubina is like not a very expensive fish and it's seen in a lot of places. Uh, it's also known as like bronze, you know, so like those are the same things or white sea bass, Sisat. Canary Island sea bass, but we just put this like irizake sauce on it, which is just sake steeped with some bonito flakes in it. And that's it. So it's rice, the fish, the irizake, salt and oil. And it's so good. And like, that's our first like bite of nigiri. And like that to like the very end of our nigiri course, like the uni has sturgeon caviar and smoked soy sauce and fresh wasabi like all these like like, these are really expensive things to put on like one bite like it has its place but it's just like knowing like how to balance that I feel like is really important and there's some other places where it's just like all of it is like it's that wow factor Instagram you know like all of those things instead of just have like a couple like things and like still like really have a passion for the simplicity of what sushi is simplicity with quotation marks around it (laughs) well it's about like restraint too and like so much of it is like restraint in adding too many ingredients and letting the natural flavors of like the fish come through but it's also tradition and technique it's all kind of rolled into one and and respect too is, is a big thing of like respect to the fish and where it came from and and how it was killed and, and all that stuff too. So normally like with sushi restaurants, there's a barrier to entry in the profession, like three years until you're allowed to touch the rice, like all that stuff. Do you think the rules are softening in the industry or is it simply a byproduct of learning sushi in the US versus Japan where you didn't have to go through all that stuff to gain that knowledge because you're in the US where if you were in Japan, you'd be touching fish by now, but probably serving customers, but you'd be seven, eight years in at one restaurant. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, I think both like something that, you know, Yoshi yesterday, we're talking a little bit about me doing this today. And so we like kind of got into some deeper conversations, but he's telling me like in comparison to a lot of other dishes in Japan and techniques in Japan, sushi is really new. And I think that a lot of people have this idea of like, like someone has watched Jiro James' sushi and is like, okay, that's the only way sushi is made. And that's not every single place there. And there is still a lot of like that time taken, like even like going from Lucky to Otoko, it's like Lucky where I was pretty much running the sushi bar. We didn't have a head chef there for like the last two years that I was there after the pandemic. And so I was pretty much acting as that role there, making all the decisions, doing all the ordering, doing most of the menu planning and everything to then going to Otoko. I didn't touch rice for the first like seven months I was there, even though I've made so much rice (laughs) and like, you know, I can do it. And like, he knew that I could, but like, it was almost like a, can you wait kind of thing, you know? That's been a lot of like what 
learning from Yoshi has been is like the patience and like, like I still haven't done Saba yet. And it's like, okay, chef, we have like, you know, you leave in like four months, right? Like you got to teach me how you do this. You know, like there's still that, like, like you will get there, but like, just, I need to see you do this perfect first and then we'll do this next thing. And there's like one time recently after I like really started getting into the sushi at a toko again, or finally, I was like telling someone like, yeah, you know, there's a lot of places I could probably go work where I didn't feel like I was a complete failure every single day. <laughs> but like, you know, and there's like, it's true. Like there's probably a lot of restaurants I could go work at where it's like, I would probably be like the most like skilled person there, but like, I'd much rather like work at this place where like Yoshi's watching me and I'm making shari, which is the the balls of rice that are in nigiri. But, you know, he's standing there watching me do it. And he's just like, that needs to be looser. That needs to be looser. And it's like, chef, if I make it any more looser, the rice isn't going to stick to it. It's just like in my head, like, I don't understand how to do it anymore. (laughs) And it's just constantly, you know, having to be okay, being told that you're doing it wrong. And the hardest part of all of it too, is also knowing that like that is just going to make you so much better in the end. It's definitely a, what I feel like is a similar experience to what it would have been like in Japan working there. The timeline's shorter, but you still have the same kind of environment, work environment where it's, I think, Cooking vegetarian cuisine is probably the hardest thing to cook because you're restricting yourself in terms of different ingredients you can use. But I think working in a sushi restaurant, it might even be Japanese, you know, authentic Japanese cuisine restaurant is the most difficult thing for a chef because so much of it is constantly trying to improve, but you also have to have this weird amount of patience and also self-confidence but you have to have this willingness to learn to just like be patient in a world that is mostly instant gratification with everything. So it's it's this like old school way of doing things. Yeah, you just have to be in this right headspace in order to be successful in it. And I think that's, you know, attributes to people's personality. And I think that's also kind of part of the reason why they make people wait three years to touch the rice. It's just, can you wait three years? Can you do it? Yeah. How much do you care about this? How much do you want it? Like, understand how important it is. And the instant gratification thing is so funny because it's like, you know, it's really hard and it's really hard on you, like, I think mentally and emotionally, but it's about like finding that balance. (laughs) And so like, there's things that you have to do on your like, in your time off to get that. I play a lot of uh, bingo on my phone. my time off like when I'm going to bed it's so ugly and bad and like disgust my partner who's like this like who's very heavily into like the game industry and like style like I'm literally looking at like a doom uh layout on his background right now but he looks at me and he's like I do not understand how I can do that and like it just I like it it's telling me I'm doing a good job <laughs> and like I just that's what I want right now I just want this game to say, wow, you looked at numbers and colors and did it, right? Uh, because it's complete opposite of the other 60 hours. You mentioned in a previous interview, I think it was like a little over a year ago or so, this is always weird for me to say, but you wanted to see more women in the kitchen. 
how does that ultimately happen in that city, in that state? How do you get more people to work in restaurants who are women? It's hard. Like you have to, I'm the first woman who has been in the kitchen at Otoko in the six years that it's been open. Since I've been there in the past year, we now have three. One of them is my best friend that I've known for 17 years. Um, who I uh, am apparently now dragging along with me. She also, I hired her at, at Lucky too. Um, so we're, I guess now a package deal. The other one who is one of our, our newest chefs back there, she actually in her interview said that she wanted to work there because of me. Like I was part of the reason we had this very like, you know, after work, hangout, drinking talk recently where she was like, it's important for like these like louder women to be in the kitchen so that we can create an environment where it's, it is okay to be in there. It starts with one, you have one in there and then they're like, oh, okay, there's a woman working there. I can go work there now. And then you have two and you have three, you know, I mean, we're not a very large team at all. There's probably like, I think like seven or eight of us. So we're almost halfway now at this point, <laughs> you know, we get one more in there and we'll start taking over at the, you know, after that. It's good. It's, it's a healthier balance having diversity is important in anything, you know, any job at all. Like you have to have different minded people and everyone seeing things differently. And that's, you know, how you're going to run things smoothly. So to have that balance and I feel like we are kind of getting there. Like we go through phases of being very diverse. It's funny to talk about diversity and then to like look at the team and be like, okay, we're starting to get like mostly Mexican-American, you know, and then Yoshi. <laughs> I really enjoy trying to create that environment as much as possible and to encourage women as much as possible and to help them like just not just not be nervous or afraid like you should be able to go and hang out you shouldn't even have to say go hang out with the boys like we are a team we're all in a kitchen we all have kitchen brain we all say a bunch of you know fucked up dirty shit all the time and draw dicks on things and you know chug drinks and take a bunch of shots and come into work hungover the next day and I think trying to like see each other more in that sense than seeing each other as different genders is important. And whenever people, I think, hear me talk about like being a woman or, or seeing more women in the kitchen, they think of it as like different genders instead of like, you know, I just want the diversity I want. I don't want to be the only girl back here, you know, making dick jokes and and being gross and all those things. Like I want, you know, another one, you know, saying whatever messed up stuff and us just laughing and being silly. And with lab grown fish coming down the road, is that something that you'd be open to working with? Obviously, there's still always going to be demand for fish from the sea, but as we know, overfishing stuff like that, some pilot programs that have helped for certain species and everything, but eventually lab grown fish is going to be relatively mainstream. So is that something that you'd be open to working with or kind of wait and see approach? Like what's your take on it since you've actually had it? I've tried some salmon recently and it was interesting. So so my best friend that I that I work with now, she was actually for a really long time, she was vegan. I did really enjoy Lucky Robot has a sustainability program. I think are still the only sushi restaurant in Austin that are certified James Beard sustainable. But you know, and then I've messed with a lot of like vegan stuff there. 
to create stuff, not only for our sustainability program, because it's important to have a balance of both. I believe you should eat a little bit of vegan, a little bit of pescatarian, a little bit of meat. There should be balance. That's how you're healthy is balance. So I've messed around with a lot of like weird things and fake meats. And I, you know, personally, Impossible Burger, love it. We'll eat it anytime. Hands down. Also love steak. Also good. Lab-grown stuff, it's interesting. I don't know if it's going to be good enough in my work lifetime to the point where I will be seeing it on a menu. I do think that it is in our future. I also think there's nothing wrong with like a well-done farmed fish or shellfish or anything. Like those things are also important. As long as, like I said, it's well done. Like there are those practices they are constantly changing and getting better like I said I just don't think like if I taste some anytime soon and it starts tasting and is texturally closer to the real thing then yeah sure I'll start thinking about it but like it just seems so far away do you still uh want to open a restaurant of your own one day or oh yeah it constantly is changing on what I want to do. It's funny because I feel like I was just talking about how everyone's opening omakases, but like I love omakases. It is, or just like a special course menu. Like I, I also just love getting them. I love experiencing chefs and what, what they feel like I should eat that day. I also, I love eating. I hate that like as I'm getting older, my stomach is not letting me eat as much as I when I was younger, I could eat a whole pizza to myself, like a whole medium pizza. And now I eat like two slices. I'm like, I don't feel good anymore. But smaller course dinners, <laughs> then I can get lots of things and just try lots of things. And I'm I love that. I love eating as much as I can and trying as many different things. I'd really would love to do like a omakase place, I think one day, but you know, one of the reasons why like Hush was so interesting to me that the guy who did that and then uh, Foreign Domestic is another restaurant in Austin that I really love is it's a family chef owned restaurant. It's a married couple running it. And that's something, you know, my partner and I want to do later on in our lives. Like our dream eventually is have a place of our own that that is mine that we run and we want to have kids and stuff. At some point in my life, I'm going to be the pregnant sushi chef. I know that that's going to happen. It's going to be like a circus act, a uh, 4'11 pregnant sushi chef trying to make fish. But that is the end goal. It's just when do I feel ready for that to happen, I think is the question. What's uh, next for you professionally? Is it just getting up to speed before Yoshi kind of departs for a little bit, essentially running the restaurant there? That's kind of the thing I can focus on right now, just because it is, it's a lot to learn. It's hard to, like I said earlier, um, you know, being someone who's only been doing it for seven years, trying to do it as good as someone who's done it for 25, which is feels and sounds impossible and I <laughs> don't know how I'm going to do it but I'm going to because at this point it has to happen um after like that like after he gets back from Aspen I don't know what the plan is after that I mean like I said I I want to work at Otoko until I feel like I've gotten everything I can out of there and I'm trying to right now, I think just like focus on that on the present. And then when I get closer to that point of like, 
I always feel bad for like being like, I got everything out of y'all, but like, you know, it's the name of the game. It's the industry that is, you know, what we're all doing. Then I feel like I can think about what the next step is. But yeah, surprisingly, a lot of guests come in and ask like what the next thing is. <laughs> and I like, hate it. Every- I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know what to do after this. Like, please stop asking me. <laughs> makes me anxious like I don't know what to do after this because every time I think about like having my own place I'm like oh it's going to be a lot and stressful but hopefully worth it when it happens so this next question comes from our previous guest on the podcast chef David Jackman of Wild Weed uh, in Cincinnati Ohio Uh, he left behind a question for you if you could change one thing you've done in your career what would it be I feel like the answer to it could change from day to day. There are days where I kind of wish I would have been a little quieter in my learning. Um, Like I said, I really, you know, like loud women and it seems like Yoshi also likes them because he keeps hiring them. It has definitely got me in a lot of trouble and made my job a lot harder. Sometimes I wish I would have known when to stop (laughs) and maybe things would have been less hard. But then, you know, I feel like you could ask me that tomorrow and I might be like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm happy I've said and done the things that I've said. I feel like I've been making a difference in the industry little by little, just like everyone else. And it's worth it no matter how hard it can be. And especially like there are people who have also thanked me and told me that I am making a difference in that. That always makes it worth it. There are still probably a few times I could shut up though and backed off a little bit. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? Well, we can just stick with the same theme and ask, I want to know what people are doing to make the industry better. What are they doing to make a difference? This next question comes from one of our listeners. Uh, They wrote in, if you could dine at one sushi restaurant anywhere in the world, which would it be and why? I know this makes me seem like such a nerd, but when I first interviewed for Lucky Robot, I was nervous and I watched Nikki Nakayama's uh, chef's table before my interview to get all pumped. And yeah, I would just love to go eat for her. She is a fucking badass, like to be a woman and a lesbian in this industry and to give a big middle finger to your very traditional family and say, fuck you, I'm not going to be soft and I'm going to go, you know, run my own sushi restaurant, even though you're telling me I can't and not let any of these guests, you know, think that I'm doing a bad job just because I'm a woman. Like, I just think she's fucking cool. I'd love to eat at a restaurant, but it's, since Chef Table happened, it's like impossible to get a reservation there. <laughs> I work too much. I don't have time for that. Maybe one day it'll calm down a little bit. I, I can go eat there. So this last set of questions we asked to everybody who comes on the podcast, so a nice compare and contrast across all the episodes for all the listeners. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your career thus far? There is a a really long time ago, I watched an interview of another woman sushi chef um, who talked about how in this industry, you are one that is so traditional, you are parts of the head chefs before you. It is like family being, you know, passed down these techniques. And so, and anytime you mess it up, you're shaming 
those people before you and the people who taught them. And that after working with um, Jay at Lucky Robot for so long, I mean, obviously through all the things that he did right and all the things he did wrong, I mean, he's still the biggest influence on my career. And I think always will be because we worked together for six years and we're very close. Um, he, you know, was at my wedding. He's, you know, forever still really important to me. We don't really talk very much anymore, but he's still huge influence. I will forever carry things that he's taught me with me. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? I'm like trying to decide between my triangle brand tweezers that I found on Amazon or I don't remember what the brand is, but I have like these really nice Japanese scissors and I wish I could fucking, they have like a beige handle and they, they're very short scissors uh, with big handles and they're so fucking sharp and they're $20. And if I lose them, I'm really bad at just leaving all my shit everywhere, but it's, it's the second I put something down, I forget that it exists, which is an extremely bad habit in a kitchen. I'm constantly apologizing for it, but those scissors, I love them and will freak out if I have misplaced them because they cut through things so well. <laughs> Bones and gills and also just like paper and random stuff, but I love those. Restaurant you recommend that isn't your own. So person gets uh, stuck at the airport, flights canceled, they're there for the overnight, can't get out till the morning and they reach out to you and you guys are closed. They're like, hey, where should we go eat? You would recommend Right now isn't a full restaurant. It's a coffee shop. It's called Try Hard in Austin. And I love them. Their coffee's amazing. Uh, my partner is a barista for 10 years. We are very bougie about coffee in this house. They roast their own beans. Everyone in there is amazing all the time and also super hot. And I love going in there. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> their food is so good for being a cafe. Like my favorite thing to get is their mushroom toast. And it's done on a sourdough koji bread that they make and has locally grown mushrooms and then like preserved like lemon peels. And like, it's just very like tart and delicious and makes me happy every time I eat it. And all their other food is really good too. But that's the one thing that I, I really love if I chose one place. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. So any place you haven't visited yet that you still want to travel to, any place you haven't eaten at that you still want to dine at. I know you mentioned Naka, but... I mean, obviously, I want to go to Japan one day. I'm just waiting until I'm ready. I want to, like, really enjoy and experience it. So I refuse to go until that is going to happen, until I feel like I'm going to go and have my best experience. But also, you know, after I get these teens out of this house, set up with life. Yeah, definitely Japan. And then restaurant. I don't know. Besides for, like, Ennaka, there's not too many places that I'm, I guess I'm too focused in my own work to pay attention to what else is going on right now. Craziest thing you've seen happen a restaurant while you're working. I gotta <laughs> choose that one carefully because I've seen some, some shit. Craziest thing I've seen. There is a, a restaurant that I worked for, for a short period of time that, that I did not mention in this podcast. So I can talk about this. And I was a cashier at this point in time, but there was a, a dead rat that everyone refused to take care of for a few days. 
and <laughs> I quit that. I like feel like I do a good job at like at giving people some notice if I'm gonna leave. But like that place, I just I just stopped going. They would also like have you come in for the morning and then give you like a two or three hour break and then have you come in and close, which was like so crazy. I'm like, why am I doing this sucks? So there's one day that I was scheduled one of those shifts and I just I just didn't go back. I like went in for my morning and then I went home and I was like, I'm not going back. And they called me and they're like, hey, are you you running behind? And I was like, oh, no, I'm not coming. And they're like, OK, so tomorrow. And I was like, no, I'm I'm not going to come back. There. <laughs> I don't want to work there. anymore. <laughs> that was a rough one. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy, whatever that you know is, you know, not the healthiest for you, but uh, you still just can't help yourself. This was so embarrassing. I went out for drinks last night and then I, on the way home, because it's the only thing available on my way home, I definitely got some Jack in the Box and got some, some of the two tacos. And man, I love those two tacos sometimes. They always upset my stomach <laughs> every time, but like something about being drunk at 3 a.m. Uh, and hungry, they just hit, they hit the spot. They're also just so mushy. They're so gross. I just like can't help myself when I'm in that condition. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've had Jack in the Box, but the times that I've had it, yeah, it is just what do you want to eat at like midnight? And it's like, oh, Jack in the Box is like right there. Like, okay. <laughs> like, it's just, it fills this weird void. Yeah. It's always two tacos and curly fries. It's always what I get every time. And they hit the spot. Favorite Instagram account you follow? One that just stands out to you. You never really skip it. My Instagram is wild all the time, but there is this woman who she's like a girlfriend of a friend of my partner. <laughs> she's just been on my Instagram forever, but she does like this tiny, um, like little bakery thing on her own. It's called Comandre Penderia is what it's called. And she's always posting like her pastries on there. Her and like um and OMG Squee, those two pastries, like they always look so freaking good. I also am like a crap baker, so bakers always get me. I'm always impressed with the things they can do. Favorite dish thing you ever cooked or created, kind of looking back on your career thus far, you can kind of point to this as almost like your aha moment, like you knew you could be a chef one day. I uh, am just thinking of this, I think, because it's going to be Thanksgiving here in a couple days uh, and it's just the holiday season. But I started like like four or five years ago, I made a, a turkey where I, I brined it with some cranberry sauce and chipotle and rosemary and it's just fucking good like every year like i get so excited i'm actually doing a chicken this year instead of a turkey because i waited too long to go buy a turkey when we ate that i was really nervous because i'd never like cooked a turkey on my own before it's it's good it's a good turkey i highly recommend that combination of flavors solid crowd pleaser I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was. Uh, if you were, is there a moment episode scene uh, about him that stands out to you? If you weren't, was there anybody else who was on TV, any other sort of culinary personality that you just always enjoyed and gravitated towards? I love cooking competition shows. It's like sports to me. It's like my football. I will yell at the TV, make a big commotion. I always love Good Eats. Good Eats is good. It's shit. And you learn so many great things on there. 
also, I met Monique. She was on Chopped as a judge. She's the sweetest woman. And she said she liked my shirt. It was amazing. And also we took a picture together. She can be so brutal sometimes. And I love her so much. I love that she will just straight out tell people that they're wrong and that they're calling something that isn't. And I just like her energy. And she said she liked my shirt when I met her. And that was cool. Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, plug everything. Definitely social media, Instagram. It's A-L-Y-X-Y-A-L is my name on Instagram. And then I need to start getting into my TikTok stuff again. I was doing it for a minute and I would just post really like gross fish stuff on TikTok. But it was called... (laughs) Neon Sushi Demon, if anyone wants to follow that, and I will uh, try to post some more weird things. But yeah, follow me on Instagram. I'm active on there. I'm always posting crazy pictures of things we're doing and us being silly. And then you can also follow Otoko on Instagram. They have their own account. Yes, Otoko, sorry. Uh, Follow Yoshi. He's also crazy and it's fun. He gets weird on Instagram sometimes. (laughs) Oh, and then obviously if you're in Austin or come by Austin, I do Tuesday service for now. A little bit easier to get reservations on Tuesdays, I think. We're still pretty booked out, um, so please plan ahead. Uh, And then uh, next spring, you'll see me there every day. (laughs) You're there every day, though, basically. But Tuesday is like your day, your menu, because Yoshi's not there. He's off that day. Tuesday is my day. Yes, I am there literally every day that we are open from open to close, 11 a.m. to midnight. You guys are open Tuesday through Saturday? Mm-hmm. Off Sunday, Monday. Reservations are needed. It's, what, 20 seats, 22 seats? Yes, but if you are good at taking last-minute plans, you can get on our wait list. And we'll text you if someone cancels. It happens. But you have to be like, yeah, I can be there in an hour. You don't have to dress up. It's fine. You can come in a t-shirt and whatever. We don't care. Unfortunately, didn't get to experience what you guys were doing firsthand when we were in Austin in March just because of life circumstances. My wife being pregnant and not able to eat a bunch of raw fish or lightly cooked fish. So uh, looking forward to you know a return trip to Austin at some point uh, in the near future and, and definitely... Uh, Otoko is on the top of our list to stop in and see you guys. It's just one of my favorite experiences, you know, omakase and that kind of sushi counter style stuff. So whenever I get to like a chance, like whatever city that we're in, I'm always like looking like, all right, is there anything in the city that are kind of moving it to the top of the list when we're playing and stuff? So, but it's awesome that you're going to be able to run the restaurant essentially, you know, next spring for a few months, kind of putting your tweaks, but also expanding, you know, your knowledge base too as well. And It'll be exciting to see everything that you kind of tinker with uh, during that time. And But yeah, if you you know need anything from us, feel free to reach out. Let us know. We always want to support everybody as much as we can. Anybody who comes on the podcast to support us. So, you know, always an open invitation for anybody to, to come back on whenever they need or want or anything like that. But yeah, otherwise, stay in touch. Obviously, just let us know when you come. We'll get you in. Big thanks again, uh, Alex, for taking some time out of her weekend and coming on the podcast, chatting about her career and sushi and working in Austin and everything. So always love talking sushi with any sushi chefs I can have on. 
it's kind of hard to have some on because a lot of them are mainly just fluent in Japanese or Korean or something along those lines, a different language than English. So a lot of them kind of the language barrier rules them out from appearing on the podcast unless we were able to get like a translator or something like that. That just doesn't really seem logistically possible, especially doing remote. It'd be really tough. Maybe one day we'll be able to do it or something kind of along that vein. But for now, Really just love talking to any sushi chef um, that I'm able to. So again, you can follow Alex on Instagram. It's A-L-Y-X-Y-L-A. Uh, that's her personal account. Her private chef business that she just started is at Hone, H-O-N-E underscore Ona, O-N-N-A underscore sushi. And then also the restaurant you can follow at Otoko Austin. It's all one word there. Follow us on Instagram too, at Spoon Mob. Check out our website, spoonmob.com, and make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. New episodes always out Thursdays, 1 a.m. The month of December, we're releasing a bunch on Tuesdays at 1 a.m. as well. So you want to make sure you're following, subscribing the podcast so you get all the new episodes as soon as they come out. And then we also release everything on YouTube a week later. So if YouTube is your preferred method of consuming podcasts, you can subscribe to our channel there. I just search Spoon Mob on the search bar. We'll come up. And um, then you'll get all the new episodes there a week after they hit all the podcast apps. I appreciate everybody listening. If you're new, welcome. If you've been here for a while, thank you. It's kind of why we wanted to release a bunch of episodes in December is kind of a thank you to everybody who's been with us from the beginning or been with us for a few months. Keeps kind of growing uh, every month over month. So it's cool to see. We got a lot of cool stuff on the way, cool conversations with super talented people just doing interesting and delicious things in the culinary industry, in the hospitality industry. So just a lot more awesome guests on the way. And, you know, we're always down to have people back on too when they have something new they just want to chat about. And we've had a bunch of those people and we'll have some more coming up too. Thank you as always. And we will talk to you guys on Thursday.